Hi, I'm Matt Ebden, and you're listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Welcome to episode 99 of the Functional Tennis Podcast. I'm Fabio Molly, your host. This week I speak to Aussie Matt Ebden. Matt has a career high of top 40 ATP. He's a slam winner. We talk about his current training, the clay and grass court swing, does a nine shadows in Madrid, his favorite matches, interests outside of tennis and more. Before we get started, it's the last week to enter the Slinger giveaway. Our podcast sponsors, Slinger, are giving away an awesome Slinger bag and we announce the winner next week to celebrate our 100th episode. Entries are open to any country that Slinger ships to. There'll be full list and full term conditions on our site at functionaltennis.com, but offhand they ship to USA, Canada, UK, Ireland, Switzerland, most of the European countries, Australia, Canada, India and Israel. To enter, all you have to do is take a screenshot of your favourite Functional Tennis podcast episode and tag our podcast account, which is at Functional Tennis Podcast, and also to tag the Slinger account, which is at Slinger Bag, on your Instagram story. We'll keep a record of all tags and then pick a random winner, which will be announced next week. If you have any questions, you can just send me a DM at our Instagram account or email me at Fabio at FunctionalTennis.com. Okay, let's chat to Matt. Matt, welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be on. Uh, always enjoy a chat. This is actually one of the strangest podcast strange is the wrong word but how it came about that you sent me a message and it was actually a message we sent you about four years ago yeah. oh yeah i um i was looking through my message requests um i have sort of private so i go through them from time to time sometimes there's sponsors or brands who want to want to do things and i troll through them now and then and delete most of them but i came across yours and it was uh, a sheet to fill out for a bio form and I didn't look at the date or anything, so I actually clicked on it and I sort of gave a little bit of info. And, and then I messaged you and said, oh, mate, I've, I've done a, a bit of info for your form. And you said, oh, that was four years ago and uh, we don't really do that anymore. But You know, we moved that on. Uh, Thomas Burdish, we sent one to him and he was like, you want me to fill this out? This is rubbish. Like, So ever since he said that, I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. And we moved on. Well, took a while to move on the podcast. But quick, I know we're short on time today, but quickly, Madrid Shadows. How painful are they? Yeah, it was an interesting one. I, I personally wasn't in Madrid this year. I've played before, but just watching, I mean, I'm, I'm training, so I've got a bit of extra time. So I've, you know, tuned in on tennis TV, had it on, watching my apartment here in France. And it was really strange to see third of the court missing, you know, not able to see one player on TV. And even in a lot of the photos I saw on Instagram and whatever, one player's blacked out. I mean, they're actually taking some nice silhouette shadow pictures but you can't see who's playing and uh you can't see the ball on that side and quite bizarre so yeah i just thought i'd put it out there yeah i'm pretty chatty on instagram as most people follow me will know i comment a lot i reply to comments uh when i have time i like to like to chat a bit same as on twitter so i thought i'd just put it out there and see what people think i usually get good feedback usually get some hate mail or some spam (laughs) too but so it's all part of the game i don't mind it i don't take it too seriously Everyone was saying the same thing. They're saying, yeah, I can't see the ball. I can't see a player. They should definitely do something about it. I think I put a poll up. We were talking about a poll on Instagram, and I had 96% of people saying, yeah, they've got to try to do something because they can't see the ball. They can't see the player. It doesn't make a lot of sense. I will give them, you know, their feature match of the day. If Rafa's playing late in the day or in the evening, 
didn't seem to be a problem. There were no shadows by the time Rafa played, unless they somehow edited it out with brightness on the cameras. But this seemed to be those morning and midday sort of matches. But it's a tough one with design. But even in Australia, all the open with the with the stadiums and the new shade sails on the outside court, that you know, there is some shadows that come over the court. So it's to be expected. But it looks like they didn't really calibrate the stadiums and where they are for the shadows at all. It's sort of fine if a shadow creeps halfway across the court and the whole court goes in the shade at some point. But there, it's just, it's really random. So, yeah, it's just a bit curious as to what people thought about that one. Have you ever played in that stadium or somewhere as bad as that? What's it like on court? Yeah, I haven't played in the Taha Magica or whichever the, the center court is, but I played some matches on the smaller stadiums and practices and the outside courts. I never noticed it. And was I there the one year it was blue clay, maybe? So that was, I was in sure something interesting happening in Madrid. That was the year Federer won it, wasn't it? I think so, where Rafa was pretty unhappy. I think he lost to Verdasco. He was slipping around. and But yeah, that's another that's another hot topic. I think, you know, obviously they've proven that blue on TV was better for spectators, better for numbers, for audience numbers, for ratings. So I was a fan of that smarter. I mean, maybe they didn't quite get the compound right. It was a bit slippery. But I'm a fan of doing whatever it takes to make our product better for TV, for audiences, for fans, for markets, for demand, for money and sponsors and for people watching. But yeah, obviously it can't be too slippery or, or something you know crazy like that. But I wouldn't mind them seeing, try to revisit that and get it right. Yeah, no. I thought it was interesting that they didn't give it much of a chance and they never went back to it. Yeah, it copped a lot of backlash and yeah, that was sort of it. It was one and done. But yeah, as the shadows, you say... Yeah, it's never easy playing Shadows. Even earlier this year, Aussie Open, I played a couple of matches with the Shadows. And uh, I mean, it's something that as, as tennis players we deal with quite a lot. It's, you know, the sun or the shadows or the wind or something. It's part of, part of it. But I just thought the, the viewing experience for, for fans, uh, you know, I wasn't in Madrid playing. So I was just a fan watching on TV this week. So tuning in was a bit disturbing that it, you know, the way it looked. Yeah, no, I agree. It definitely, I didn't enjoy watching it. So speaking of tennis, what are your plans now? What's your, what's happening? You're training in the All In Tennis Academy, which for those who don't know is an academy run by Song, owned by Songa. I'm not sure who else, but I follow them on social media to put out some great content. So any listeners should check them out, but tell us what's going on there and what's the plan. Yes, yeah, so my last tournament was Munich, and then I, I, my ranking is a little low. I didn't make the cut to singles or doubles in Madrid and Rome, so I had a couple of weeks off to, to train. Going back to Australia is virtually impossible and not in the plan. So my wife and I, we love the, this region in the south of France. Kind of cliche, but for a reason, it's really good. We love it here near the beach, in good weather, you know, in the country towns, it's beautiful as well. And uh, yeah, I had some contacts and friends who sort of referred me to the, the guys at All In. Thierry Aschioni is, well, Songa's coach and, and friends, and they, they sort of run and they've opened this All In Academy in, you know, near Nice down here. So yeah, I thought it's a perfect place to come and yeah, we, we have a nice apartment by the sea, we have a car for a couple of weeks, so we've sort of made a little home base here. And yeah, I've been training there during the weeks as well. Uh, I will play Lyon next, which perfect for that too that's only about a four-hour drive and then i'll be on to paris after that i'll be in qualifying for singles and hopefully the main drawing doubles as well so that's uh that's my plan and then yeah, on to greener pastures under the grass after that you love that you ex- you love a bit of grass yeah i don't mind it yeah i mean i probably grew up mostly on hard court and then in australia I had a lot of exposure to grass a little bit to clay but yeah obviously my career I focused more on hard court and grass court played played the clay court season but 
you know, not not many tournaments each year. But I really enjoy the clay. I really like sliding when it comes around. You know, I, I sort of move well on it, but I just you know, didn't really spend years and years and years honing more my clay court prowess. But I've enjoyed the challenge the last few years. Every time I do go on the clay, even if it's just for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, you know, the challenge trying to adapt, trying to do what I can and get the most out of it. And, yeah, I've definitely improved a lot and learned a lot about the clay over the years and it's probably helped other parts of my game too. So definitely see the value in it. And what excites you more, the Aussie Open part of the year or the green grass part of the year? That's such a hard one, but I have to say, I've been answered this question, my you know, favorite tournament, it is Australian Open because it's special and it's really a blessing, I suppose, to have a, your home Grand Slam. If it wasn't the case, I'm sure probably Wimbledon, although Australia is the happy slam. Um, but yeah, as an Aussie playing at home, I, I love playing at home. I played my best tennis, some of my best tennis at home, uh, sort of thrive under those conditions and, and I love that. So. But yeah, for me, Wimbledon is probably on par or very, very close second. Uh, yeah, naturally, I love England. I have a home base there, basically, of sort of family and friends and, and a home that we sort of live and base out of during the middle of the year. So I love being around there, Queens and even Nottingham and, you know, won a few of those other tournaments as well and played well at Wimbledon. So, and I actually went there for the first time when I was maybe nine years old, the year Richard Krychek won Wimbledon. I think it was 1995. Uh, I was about seven years old or something. Showing your age there. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm I'm not as young as I used to be. I um I'm the first to admit I say that a lot. But yeah, it's kind of strange as the as the years go by, and now I'm in my thirties. It's it's kind of strange. I'm sort of still stuck mentally thinking I'm in my mid twenties or mid to late twenties or something. It's a it's a strange phenomenon. Good place to be, your mid to late 20s. If, had you said early 20s, I would have been worried. I'm not, though. I mean, my, my age, my actual age, I'm, I'm in my 30s. But um, yeah, mentally, it's a strange one. No, mentally, that's the best place to be. So you did a bad knee injury back in 2016. You know, as you get older, not I know that was five years ago, but how hard is it coming back from surgery? Do you feel when you come out of a surgery, it just takes that bit longer? You don't feel as secure or... Yeah, so a few parts probably to that question for me. Uh, firstly, it wasn't actually that serious an injury. I, it cost me probably six months because I spent the first three, four months, you know, doing scans, trying to play, trying to rehab, trying to do everything I could. And in the end, there was just a, a tiny little flap uh, behind my kneecap that had sort of come out as a result. Probably my foot, I needed a little orthotic basically. And yeah, it was just a, a very simple little, like little flap that was out, just needed basically some shaving down and create the space. And it was a 20-minute minor arthroscopic surgery. I woke up, had a bandage on, walked out, walked up the stairs at home. I was hitting just with a bandage on within a week, stationary, sort of hitting, standing, and playing points within three weeks and the tournament six weeks later. Um, but the whole process kind of cost me six months at least. So that was great to know. Even while they were you know, doing that, they checked the knee and said, oh, meniscus great, calves great, everything was just that one little area. So... Actually, he said, you know, knee joint's great, nothing to worry about. So that was good. I was fortunate to have you know, probably one of the best surgeons in Australia or even the world operate on me back in Australia. That was that was good. But, yeah, that first time, you know, no one wants to get surgery. Everyone's, it's taboo, you know, like surgery, oh, it's so serious and whatever. But I'm like, geez, if I'd known what I know now, like five months before, I'd say, yeah, give me a quick little surgery and in six weeks I'll be playing tournament, no problem. And it really was that good. I mean, obviously it had a little bit of... Um, Pain for a few months while I healed up, but not much at all, and it fixed the problem. And it was very minor in the end, so not a problem. And back then, I was you know 27, 28, 
felt like I was 23. So, you know, like no issue coming, coming back physically from that. Probably more mentally, it was a strange thing because, you know, I had the little niggles and small injuries and fatigue and that here and there over five, ten years of my career before that. But it just sort of made me think, oh, I don't have 15 or 20 years left in my career. You know, I might have three or five or ten or something, but I don't have 15, 20 or unlimited anymore. So kind of just made me look at myself and look at life and sort of my identity as a person and sort of thought, you know, when I had that extra time at home, the first sort of month or two, you're sort of panicking, oh, I'm you know, so much time off. But then after a while, you sort of settle into it and you're like, oh, I've got my family, my friends, my home. This is who I am, even without tennis. So that was, uh, I suppose, really nice to kind of find yourself through that in, in another part of life and, and go through that and realize, oh, tennis is great and I'm a tennis player, but that's not the heart and soul of who I am. And... Yeah, it uh, was also motivating to then come back after that from such a break. You, know, you come back pretty rejuvenated and refreshed and with a, you know, a bottle load of energy because you know, six months off the tour gives you a lot of time to rest and recover and even train and get your body strong. So yeah, I worked on my body hard in that time actually and came out much stronger probably from it than before, which was evidently quite good for my next, well, you know, the last five years played some of my best tennis and had some of my best years since then. So, yeah, it, it wasn't too bad. But now being in my 30s, I noticed obviously the recovery of things takes a little longer. You have to respect the body, have to do all the right things, all the warm-ups, all the training, the rehab, you know, the stretching and massages. And, yeah, if you if you skimp on any of that, probably find yourself in, in trouble pretty quick. But I'm finding that, you know, if I, if I keep up and, schedule smartly or all the bits and pieces. Um, body's in good shape, mentally I'm in good shape and probably got more experience with dealing with it all and uh, you know, different perspective on, on tennis and life as you go. At Functional Tennis, we are all about helping your tennis game get 1% better every day. That's why our match and practice journals are a great tool to have in your gear bag. The Functional Tennis match and practice journals help you plan and evaluate your matches and practice sessions. It includes goal setting, quotes, pressure tests and more. It's used by players of all ages and levels and it's a great way to get away from your phone and focus in on your game. To learn more, visit functionaltennis.com. As, as you would know. Just a couple of things. One, you're sort of good mates with Federer, are you? I mean, everyone would like to say they're good good mates. Uh, yeah, we, we talk a lot. We practice a lot. Um, his mother's South African, and then he loves being in Australia. Yeah, trained with him quite a bit, and we sort of chatted quite a bit. So, Do you call him for, do you ever text him, say, I need some tips? How, how do you do it? Like, you're 40. How do you do it? Yeah, well, I mean, he's definitely an inspiration in that regard. Uh, that knee injury he spoke about five years ago, whenever it was, was an interesting one, because I came back sort of December off-season, January, and I, I live in Perth, so the Hopman Cup was there, and Rog came in early, and we trained together for about 10 days, and I was coming back from the knee surgery, and so was he. So we were even sharing, I suppose, a similar feeling, and we were sort of comparing notes, oh, how does your knee feel? What did you have? Have you got a scar? And, you know, we played practice sets, and that was great. Um, he was playing good, I was playing good. It was a great sort of benchmark to test my level. And that was a great springboard for me for that year. And obviously for him too, he, he played well at Hopman Cup and he won Aussie Open famously, you know, a few weeks later as well. So You did, you did. And looking at, you say you've had probably your best part of your career after that injury. Let's find out now. But if you're telling your grandkids the best match, your favorite match, if you've won the bedtime story, talk about the match. What's that one match you tell them about? 
yeah, it's a strange one. Probably winning a Grand Slam in mixed doubles, even though it was mixed doubles at Australian Open in my home Grand Slam. Getting to a Grand Slam final, you know, we played, I think, on the Sunday afternoon, evening, right before the men's singles final. I think Roger might have been in it or something. And, okay, I know it was only mixed doubles. I would have loved to be playing the men's singles final. It's not so easy. But, yeah, just to be in the Grand Slam final, I realized, hey, I can actually win a Grand Slam title here and put everything into that and go out there and execute and play a great match and, you know, like go for it and then convert. Uh, you know, those those opportunities don't come around very often. And, you know, next year, very, very rare. And to, to get that and win a Grand Slam title at home in Australia, it's pretty special so that will definitely be there and then anyway in singles for me probably all my sort of top 10 wins uh, I've been fortunate I've been you know able to be quite a lot of top 10 players and former top 10 players you know big names big guys most recently probably Dominic Team in the last 18 months two years uh, in Shanghai I guess he was I don't know if he was ranked four or three or five or something but at Wimbledon against Goffin. Um, I played Federer in the quarterfinals in Halle. I lost a close match, 7-6, 7-5. I was up a break twice in the second set, serve for it. Didn't get the second, and he ended up winning. And So that was tough to lose that one. He was world number one, and obviously you know, we practiced together. We knew each other well. It would have been nice to beat him in Halle as a world number one on grass. I was, I was very close and playing well on grass myself. Yeah, all, all those matches are special. I think that and you know Davis Cup, Davis Cup debut, playing matches in, you know, in the green and gold for Australia. That's a, been a goal since I was a kid. So I, yeah, I think Grand Slams, Davis Cup matches, and you know, my, my top 10 wins and biggest matches are, are probably my favourites. You definitely talk the kids to sleep there. <laughs> and is there much respect? Like, let's say you beat Dominic Team, you've beaten other guys. How much more respect do you earn once you beat those guys? Do you think, like, you just can't, you got to beat these guys or else they're going to walk all over you? Yeah, I think it's it's true. Early on in my career, I was kind of lucky to have, you know, back, I was, you know, I say early, but I broke in sort of when I was 22, 23, and I was able to beat Marty Fish, I think, third round at Indian Wells when he was seven in the world, maybe, and number one American. So started having top 10 wins back then. And, you know, you see around guys get top 10 wins, and, you know, even guys in top 10, they have a bad day or they're a bit injured or fatigued and they lose. So, you know, someone can get a win here or there. But, if you can repeatedly pull those off and you know, you're know you someone who's sort of dangerous enough to, you know, if you play well on a given day or surface or whatever, you're capable of beating top 10 players, I think, you know, over and over again. It's a little different than getting one top 10 win somewhere here random when the guy was sick or injured or didn't play well or wasn't really into it. It's, it's different. So, um, yeah, being able to repeatedly do that has been fun for me and I've obviously been trying to, find and repeat that form week in, week out, month in, month out as the years go. So I was, you know, I was able to get to the top 40, but i got to do that even more to be able to get to the top 30 or top 20 or top 10 myself, which has you know, always been the goal. I haven't been able to get right to the very top just yet. Not so easy, but yeah, I keep trying and keep, keep going for it. Nice. And you talk about other interests, moving into your 30s and reflecting on life and planning for the future. But two things I know you're into. One is a bit of crypto, investing and watches. So tell me what watch you're wearing there. Yeah, this is Morris de Marriac Le Mans Chronographs. I can see it. Yeah, yeah. It's a pretty cool watch. It's got a 26 on it. It's my birthday, so you can customize the dial. Yeah, it's from, from the guys in Zurich. They're a Swiss, Swiss watch brand. It's got a French racing stripe from the 24 Hours of Le Mans. So for me, that's just pretty cool, kind of unique style, custom style. I, I like that. I like to sort of have my own personal taste. Yeah, investing. I'm into investing. I've always yeah, done a lot of property and stuff. My father's 
finance, uh, money sort of guy, so we've always done a lot of investing. Yeah, we mostly stocks in Australian stock exchange, more so than, yeah, the, the crypto post was funny. You know, it's, it's obviously in the news a lot these days and a lot of memes and stuff about it, but it's a, it's a meme world out there at the moment, um, and, and crypto is showing that. I don't invest in crypto yet. I'm not a, a big believer in it, but I'm learning more about it. I have some friends who, who do do it, and um, it's piquing my interest. But no, I invest mainly in the stocks. I just know a little bit about it. I wouldn't really go near it myself, but I'm sure there's, there must be tennis guys out there who've done well. Maybe they've done better on the crypto than their, their tennis, or maybe there's young guys out there because it's sort of a lot of young people are into it and they're probably financing their tennis career because, you know, had you done well, you can build yourself a nice team, I reckon. It's possible. It's possible. Look, I mean, crypto, you know, some of the coins and things from what I've learned now do have some value and the actual institutions or, you know, their transaction ledgers or things like that. But most of the coins or a lot of them are really just hype and memes. It's, uh, it's quite amusing to watch, but that's, you know, what, that's what, like you say, young people and, and people on the internet and, and people who love memes. Uh, love to buy coins and invest in gambling. So maybe it's more like a new betting, you know? People used to bet on horse racing and sport and stuff, and now they're betting on meme coins. So it's a, it's the way of the world, uh, you know, the, the connected, you know, uh, the web and all that. But uh, I like the, the companies that have good futures, good, they make revenues, they have good outlooks, perspectives, you know, speculative stocks that are, that are looking to do well in the future. That pay a few dividends. Yeah, it's, uh, it does all right. And I'm, I'm a fan of property too. In Australia, the property market's always been, been a good one. It can make a nice transition. You know, after your career, you've, at least you've something to work on rather than being, oh, crap, I'm finished now. Whenever that is, you're like, <laughs> what do I do now? Because you hear those issues. But getting back to the watches, do you speak to Gail Monfie at all? I know he's a massive, massive watch guy. He's on some fancy board. Yes, he is on a board. Uh, that's an interesting board. Uh, I know a few people who know about that board and, and yeah, obviously Gail himself. The interesting that board needs to be people who are know a lot about watches and are sort of within the watch industry but have no direct ties or biases. So because Gail doesn't work for a watch brand or I suppose he's, you know, he might have a buffoon and some others might have you know, given some watches or whatever, but because he does not a watch journalist or a watch CEO or something, so he can sit on the board as an independent sort of person. So that's why that works. Yeah, I've seen his collections, quite amazing, quite credible and, and a lot more valuable than mine. <laughs> um, but yeah, he obviously loves and has got the bug as well. And you know, I'm pretty sure, I think he lives there in Geneva near the lake, so he's sort of in the middle of all the houses of the watches. Um, and is there one, let's say, you know, Federer, Naomi, and a few others are sponsored by Rolex? Is that the mecca of sponsorship brands that people want? Or Hublot? I know we're vinkers with Hublot, but is it like, whoa, they got Rolex? Do you have to be a special sort of person? Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, it's no secret Rolex is the biggest marketing watch brand, the biggest you know, marketed watch brand. And, you know, they've got great watches. Um, are they the best watches in the world? No, but that's a loaded question. Are they the most expensive? No. But are they great watches? Are they luxury? Yes, yes. Are they the most marketed? Are they reliable? Yes, yes. And, you know, it's sort of like Nike as a as a sports brand. You know, like um, a lot of the young athletes, they, they've got the biggest budgets for marketing. So they buy the athletes. So yeah, sure. If you get a Rolex deal, you're probably going to get some good money from him there. But on the flip side, a lot of people see Rolexes just as status symbols and they don't like people who buy or wear Rolexes because they think, oh, you're just doing that to show that you've got a Rolex. So me personally, I, 
I mean, it's been it's interesting for me. I have some very expensive watches and some very cheap watches, and a lot in between. So I sort of like and appreciate everything from a fifty dollar watch to a five million dollar watch. <laughs> I don't have a five million dollar watch. I have some expensive watches, but not that expensive. And I just like learning about you know, orology and the watch industry, the, the people, the brands, and all the different levels and scales and price points and. I'm kind of studious. I like to read a lot and learn a lot. So that's been something that's interested me a lot the last eight years, I suppose. Great having those interests, especially when you can talk to other players about it. And just end this on something we ask most of our guests is that especially successful guests, well, most of them are successful. But what advice do you have for young tennis players out there who want to be pros, who are grafting hard in the practice courts? Yeah, I mean, actually have a bit of a, a tennis set up back in Perth. I had extra time last year, so I started helping a few of the younger ones and even the better teenagers come through in, in Perth in Australia and yeah as you go in your career you know a lot of people ask you or media they ask you what's your what's your advice and I think definitely my advice is enjoy it first of all a lot of people I see and even myself when I was 10 11 12 13 14 15 I saw a lot of really good players competitors of mine come and go by the wayside because they took it almost too seriously too quickly and got bogged down with parents pressuring them or them worrying too much about it themselves and so what I say to 12, 13 year olds or even younger than that these days is that enjoy it first and foremost. Sure, improve, work on your game, work on your technique with your coaches, do the tournaments, do everything. But number one, you have to keep enjoying it. That has to be the very forefront because if by the time you're 18 or 20 years old, you've quit, you've got no chance of being a good player if you quit at all. So you've got to remain in the game. You've got to remain enjoying it, keep it balanced and, uh, and work at it from there. So that's definitely my number one advice. Sounds silly, but it's uh, a really, a really, really, and even even in professional career, you've got to keep that balance. You've got to keep happy and enjoying it. Sure, we all want to be number one in the world, win Grand Slams, make a lot of money, be professional, be famous, whatever. But uh, you really have to love what you do because it's extremely tough. It's extremely taxing. It's extremely demanding, and probably getting even tougher by the year. That you know, more exposure to more athletes, to better players, more data. Um, the game is getting you know, stronger and more and more depth every year so it's uh i wouldn't change it for the world i love what i do but it takes you know it's, it's not for everyone put it that way and, and i've seen that and i know and respect that and that's also fine uh, i tell them you know it's look if, if it's not for you it's not for you that's fine like, it's your life you can do what you want um if it is for you get ready it's 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 heck of a tough it's amazing it's amazing it'll It'll lead you probably to your lowest lows possible and your highest highs possible, but and everything in between. But uh, no, it's a fun journey, and yeah, I'm, I'm I'm really grateful and sort of appreciative to, to be a tennis player and be in the sport. Matt, thank you very much for that. Thanks for sharing your story, and yeah, best of luck in the upcoming clay court and grass court season and whatever else the year has for you. Thanks a lot. Cool. Thanks, mate. No, enjoy the chat. Thanks. Hope you enjoyed that chat with Matt. He was super nice, super interesting. Great to see the interest outside of tennis and you know how well he's connected with all the players out there. But I'll be back next week with the Slinger Bag giveaway winner. Until then, get out on court, play some tennis and enjoy the great weather. Bye.